Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 130. My guest today is Handel Jones, born and raised in Wales and now based in Silicon Valley. With over 50 years of experience in the electronics industry and consulting for international business strategies for over 30 years, supporting governments and corporations globally, analyzing technology and predicting corporate and government strategy and market trends. His new book is When AI Rules the World, China, the U.S., and the Race to Control a Smart Planet. And that is what we are here to talk about. With the recent ratcheting up of technology sanctions against China by the United States, this is a very hot topic. How do the Chinese government and the Chinese people think about artificial intelligence and what are their strategies for infrastructure and technology expansion? This interview was an education and an eye-opener for me in many ways. And especially if you are in business, you will find some valuable and actionable intel here. So let's get right to the interview with Handel Jones. Well, Handel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what's a Welsh lad like you doing in Silicon Valley and in the thick of the most contentious discussion about the future of technology at the moment, which is the relationship between the U.S. and China. How did you get into that? So my early training was in mathematics. So I've always been interested in things related to data. So coming to the U.S., basically, I've been in the semiconductor industry for a number of years. But the last few years, I've really been focusing on what's the future going to look like and what are the characteristics that will change things. So AI, at the beginning of my research and so on, was basically very fundamental, didn't really look particularly promising. But then over the last few years, some significant things have happened to make it look real. One, obviously, is the picture-taking capabilities of smartphones. I mean, outstanding. Also, I was really not a firm believer that autonomous vehicles could be practical. But today, I'm convinced that this obviously is a key part of the future, tied in with EVs and so on. But my interest in China really started when I was at Rockwell. Jiang Zemin came into Dallas. My boss was out of town. And so I gave a presentation to him. And he was very interested. This was on communications. I was actually involved with military, but we didn't discuss those. And when was this? This was back in the early 80s. And so at lunch, basically, Trammell Crow arranged it. I was sitting in the back seat. He saw me. He said, come and sit next to me. So I said, sat next to him at lunch. And then we talked some more. And then he said, come to China. But the U.S. government said, no way. Rockwell was building the B-1 bomber. They were doing the space shuttle. And so I was involved in some of the stuff that was fairly sensitive. But that really kind of created an interest in China. So I started going to China in 2005. And I've written three books on China. First one was China America, published by McGraw-Hill. The second one was 
How China Can Become Number One. That was published in Mandarin and was actually a bestseller in China. And part of it is because the central government wanted the provincial governors to read it. And it basically looked at the evolution of technology and where technology was going. But of course, my real interest, though, was what's going on in Silicon Valley and also in the U.S. in terms of AI. The other part of AI that interested me was I went to some conferences and the speakers there were mainly from academia doing really interesting stuff, but trying to emulate the human brain. And there's no way AI can emulate the human brain. AI is a different way of doing things. AI manages data, operates on data. The brain operates, can operate on emotion as well as data. So how much would computing power increase and where would that take AI? So the purpose of writing the book was to basically try and think through those concepts. And one of the concepts in the book is what's called the virtual digital twin. And the virtual digital twin is where you have an extra brain. And that extra brain today maybe is the smartphone, but in future we will call superphone. And it can record basically many of your thoughts in terms of logic. It can record basically your history, it can record a whole bunch of things about you, but it can also do calculations. And in terms of many aspects of life would be more powerful in terms of analytics than the human brain. So those kind of concepts, what do they mean? Also things like virtual reality. Today is very primitive. And even the latest stuff from Meta, you know, is an improvement. But in future, though, virtual reality is going to change society because you can have goods, physical goods as virtual objects. You can have Mona Lisa. You can have basically all these things in front of you and you can just sit there and your life can just be part of a virtual world. And that's the opium of the 2030s. Let's go back to some of the origins of this, because back in the early 80s, when you had this encounter at Rockwell, I don't think anyone was taking China seriously as a world leader in computer technology. That's changed. And the conventional narrative is that when AlphaGo became the world Go champion in 2016, the Chinese lost their mind and developed a strategy to become the world leader in AI and that they've been pursuing that relentlessly ever since. How do you see that? I think that's a good summary. China is going through a major digitization phase. Data basically will dominate China and data can be controlled from central organizations and so on. So AI is really a tool, as I said, to manage data and to derive benefits from data, also basically power from data. So when I did the uh, book, When China Can Become Number One, that was heavily based on the data side of it. And of course, a key part of all of that is semiconductors. So what China has been doing is China has this image of copying. Yeah, they copy, but they also are very innovative. And I think that's part of China, which is dramatically underestimated. So they've been systematically gaining access to capabilities to build AI. So 3D facial recognition is one area which, you know, in the US and in Canada and Europe, basically, we really don't make much use of it. In airports, we use it now some. But in China, it's a very powerful tool initially to reduce crime, but also now to streamline transactions. 
So if you want to go to a bank, they basically have 3D facial recognition, so they know who you are, but they can also track you. And you also have 3D facial recognition on the phone, so they know where you are. So it's a very powerful tool in terms of transactions, making things easier, but it also gives them control. So the ideas in China that I think are powerful, in addition to working on the technology, they work on the applications for the use of the technology. So when the technology emerges, they basically have the ability to go into high volume, and it's high volume that gives you low cost. So if you keep something within a small environment, like a military environment, enhancing it becomes very expensive. But if it's in the merchant market where you have high volume, like smartphones, I mean, the camera capabilities of smartphones have come because of the high volume and, you know, the big money that Sony can make in image sensors and the big money that Qualcomm can make in terms of the chipsets. You know, so, and of course, obviously the big money Apple can make in selling phones. So the commercial side is something that the China government supports as well as developing technology. But of course, there's a lot of waste. Mm. And if you look at now, before China had maybe 20 or 25 or 30 smartphone companies, now big ones down to three or four. The activities that you described as part of their competitive advantage are all the sorts of things that cause fear and consternation in the West in terms of invasion of privacy. The mention of tracking of any kind causes the ACLU to start sharpening their lawyers. What is the attitude towards those in China? Does the average person go, this is worth it? Or what is the difference in their attitude towards that there that enables that to be successful? Well, many of the Chinese people, especially the more educated ones, are very concerned about these trends. And the restrictions with COVID is an example of where you had local unrest, but there is strong pressure in China to resist people resisting. And the propaganda machine is very powerful there. So that is really a very good question because, you know, with the new, with the changes in people in the 20th Congress, restrictions are going to become much tighter. And you can see Xi Jinping doesn't tolerate anybody resisting him or having different views. And the concept is that an efficient dictatorship will win. And as long as it doesn't abuse power, there are benefits to it. No, China, there is significant resistance. But when you look at COVID, the big publicity in China is a million people plus have died in the U.S., and in China, it's 5,000 or whatever it is, or 10,000. Obviously, these numbers are not always correct, but they point out that big difference. So which do you want? Do you want to die or do you want to have some limitations? And of course, when you look at the people that have died, they're mainly old people. But yeah, there are concerns in terms of these limitations, and they probably will get stronger. So part of the new 20th Congress is they've got two people in high positions that are very experienced in security. So it's planning ahead. So it's planning ahead for internal stress and also external stress. I want to look at what the differences might be in goals for national AI strategy between the US and China. China published that report in, I think, 2017, their next generation AI strategy. I confess I have not read much of it. And the US in 2016 published a National Science and Technology Council report one of the last outputs of the Obama administration about artificial intelligence. 
Are they the same goals, or is there a difference that you see between what China would like to do with AI and what the United States nationally would like to do? Well, I've read some of these reports, also the latest one from Eric Schmidt and so on. So we see many common goals. The big difference, though, is China is implementing. And example for you is education. AI is going to dramatically change what you need to learn. AI will dramatically change the skill sets that you need. So what China has implemented is very intense selection process of students at a fairly early age. There's big resistance from parents. But when you're 15 or 16 years old, you get selected in terms of whether you really go to a top university or not. And roughly 10% of students get selected. And I have personal knowledge of this, but you go to school six and a half days a week. And you start almost seven o'clock in the morning and you finish 10 o'clock at night. And it's very intense learning. But the other part of it is also the exams. So in the US, we have no problem selecting athletes and giving them intense training. And of course, they can become very famous and wealthy. But China is taking the similar approach with educating students. So they now have about 10 million graduates a year. By the way, 50% of them are women or girls and high percentage of STEM. But they're training a fairly large group of people who are highly educated in technology, but also very competitive. Because to get through the system, not only do you have to be good in learning, but you also have to be basically very competitive in passing the exams. And of course, you get a lot of failures. And the parents of the ones who fail, especially if it's one-child policy, are very upset. But basically, they're implementing what Eric Schmidt and so on have been advocating in terms of improving the education process. Here, nothing. Hmm. If I set that against the frame of US-China relations lately, I could get scared. Does it scare you what's happening right now and how China is ramping up all this capability? Yeah, it really scares me. Yeah. And again, the other part of it is military. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go into much of my past in the military, but when we started IBS, which was about 30 something years ago, LSI Logic was funded by Lockheed to do leading edge semiconductor products. And those went into our military stuff. I actually worked on Stinger, uh, chips for Stinger. Today, US is really doing military designs, maybe in 28 nanometers. And the reason is it's very difficult for Boeing and Lockheed to hire top graduates. And also you need software development. And so Google engineers have said they will not work for the US military. So US military is falling significantly behind using the latest technologies. Now, U.S. has Israel. Israel is actually doing really well. But China, though, probably maybe is at seven nanometers. And they basically provide incentives for graduates from Tom universities. Maybe in five years, if you work for military, you can then leave and join the private sector. But by that time, we'll give you enough money so you can have a deposit for an apartment. So if you're a man, you can get a wife. If you're a woman, you know, blah. And of course, they're also using the relatively advanced semiconductors. So the level of expertise in new military systems in China, which can include drones, of course, swarms of drones is the goal, but also hypersonic missiles 
is actually moving ahead of the U.S. That scares me. Hmm. That scares me. The 28 and 7 nanometers that you described is what, a wavelength or? No, it's the feature dimensions of semiconductors. So the generation, you have 28, then you have 16, then you have 7, or maybe you have 10. So basically, maybe two or three generations ahead. Now, Apple is starting to do four. Mm-hmm. So you have seven, five, four. So Apple, if you look at what Apple is at versus the military, it's 10 years difference. Oh, got it. So that's basically the resolution with which you can etch features on a silicon chip. And you described that, though, as a capability of China. I had thought that innovation in chip manufacture was coming out of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Yeah, so leadership in manufacturing for the logic products today is within TSMC. Samsung is also pre-advanced. Intel has a strategy to become advanced. And then how do you define Taiwan? So the expertise in TSMC is outstanding. But part of the U.S. strategy right now is to block China from getting future generations of chips. So they define it maybe the greatest BIS regulation includes potentially 16 nanometers, uh, DRAM, uh, NAND, also many other products. So the U.S. is now taking the steps to basically not initially they talk about the equipment, but the real intent is to block chips to China. Hmm. But then the issue that you have is if you block chips to China and they come out of Taiwan, is China going to say, yeah, go ahead, just get all the chips you want in the U.S.? We can't get any. Is that going to happen? Hmm. Because Xi Jinping and the way he operates? Does this make it more likely that they will accelerate their plans to invade Taiwan? Well, invading Taiwan obviously will have dramatic repercussions for both China and the U.S. So that's probably even though this noise is not likely to happen. But I think what there are other ways in addition to doing stuff with Taiwan. I mean, they could basically, if you have data, you can do basically, you can slow down the electricity supply. You can do minor damage or slowing things where you don't destroy the ecosystem, but you make it more difficult for the U.S. to get the chips. Right. Utah strategy said, we'll take care of you. You know, basically give us time. And we'll build up the ecosystem in the U.S. That can happen, but how soon will it happen and how effective will it be? There are questions. So these recent sanctions by the U.S. against China are, I think, the most severe yet. They even threaten to revoke U.S. person status from any U.S. person or citizen that does work for China, assists them in their technology. What is the likely impact of those sanctions going to be on China? Well, we've written on this extensively because our customer base is heavily impacted by the resolution. So the first part is to block China from manufacturing semiconductors, advanced features, but they do include AI and any semiconductors related to human rights. Human rights can cover almost anything. AI can cover almost anything. Your smartphone is AI. You know, basically a a thermometer can be AI. But the real intent is to block China from getting access to semiconductor products. Because if you can get semiconductors from Intel or from NVIDIA, from somebody else, then, you know, not having manufacturing doesn't destroy you. But the sanctions do include blocking NVIDIA, the latest graphics chips, AMD, 
but now that's being expanded. And so it's going to be expanded to basically a much broader range of chips. That has not been formally announced yet, but that's going to be the next step. Also, people with U.S. citizens, uh, green cards, again, not being allowed to support the semiconductor industry in China. But that does that also include blocking them from working that can benefit the China semiconductor industry or electronics industry when they work in the U.S.? So it's got very broad implications, and we expect it to be implemented more rigorously step by step unless China resists. And what would that resistance look like? Yeah, that's a very, very key question. As I said, blocking or slowing chips coming or wafers coming out of Taiwan. U.S. has a record trade deficit with China. There can be the increase of some or putting of taxes on those exports, which can raise prices. And it should be very difficult to find alternate sources. We get rare earths from China. The OSATs, the packaging and testing facilities of companies like ASE and other companies are in China. They could basically be slowed down or blocked. Apple continues to have significant part of manufacturing in China. Yeah, if you go to Vietnam, if you go to India, a big part of supply chain still comes out of China, lenses and so on. So again, they could put a significant slowdown on many products being manufactured. But if you are China, and if you say, well, I'm not going to get semiconductors, and I have some control over the semiconductor supply chain for you, the natural thing to do is say, well, I'm going to slow down you, or basically I'm going to negotiate with you on slowing you down unless you give me some relief. So hopefully there'll be some rational discussions, and we will have a rational resolution. But we are in a trade war. We are in a technology war. And when you're in one of those, you have to run very fast. U.S. is still in a good position, but things have to change because China is getting stronger. And with our economic dependence on advanced technology, this sounds like a recipe for a recession. It does. And potentially even more because if you know, you know how much you depend on electronics, trade goods. But again, our whole ecosystem depends on data. So again, we can have cyber warfare. But yeah, basically, we have inflation already. I'm surprised by the GDP growth of China in Q3 of 3.9%, based on the fact that the factories were slowed down, local consumption has slowed down, a building has slowed down. So they say that industrial output went up, but I'm surprised because if you look at the ships leaving China, they're down. Mm. And the consumption inside China is down. So I was surprised by that number. To what extent do they depend on the West for innovation? At least in my view, my understanding, every innovation I can think of in computer technology and AI has come out of the West. In fact, all of them have come out of Silicon Valley with the exception of deep learning from deep mind when they were in London, at least the ones I can think of. You listed how China was successful in commercializing applications at scale, but it still seems to me that those applications were invented in the West. Help correct me on that. So some of that is correct. But if you look at 5G, China has many basic patents of 5G, and they're significantly ahead of the US and Europe in 5G. China is now doing 6G. And 6G, basically, they're putting in, we've been able to identify 2 billion or more a year. I think it's probably a lot more than that, but they'll have 6G in 2028, maybe 2030 commercialization. That's fully China-developed. 
if you look at some of the algorithms with 3D facial recognition, some of the basic technology did start in the US. But again, in terms of enhancements, the latest capabilities are in China. The maglev train technology developed initially Germany and Japan and so on. But now the enhancements to it, uh, they, you know, they're talking about a thousand kilometer per hour maglev now. And that is fairly radical technology. So again, it depends on where you start with technology. You know, if you say, well, it all started with transistor in Bell Labs, what they're doing with technology in many cases is much more innovative than what we're doing with technology. And part of it is because of government spending. It ends up being, a lot of it is wasted. But if you look at solar cells, I mean, yeah, they were developed in the US and Europe, but now new generations are pretty much exclusively coming out of China. Batteries, again, for EVs, again, technology, Canada has some good sources of batteries, Ballard, but now the enhancements are coming out of China. So it depends on how you define technology. And you're talking about the maglev trains there, and China has built out cities and high-speed rail at a rate that is just incomprehensible to anyone else. And what has been the impact to them on connecting their country at that rate? That's a very interesting question because they do have quite a few minorities. And basically, part of the Xi Jinping's future of China is to kind of eliminate some of the difference in the minorities. And so what you do is obviously now all the education is based on Mandarin and the minority language is secondary or maybe third after English. But then having this efficient transportation system makes logistics very effective. So factories initially were based in Shenzhen and so on, but now they've spread them throughout China. Supply chain becomes very efficient. And of course, the next part of it is intelligent robots. So where they don't need people. But it's really kind of improved the um, mobility of people from a physical sense inside China. But it also, I said, improved logistics for delivery of goods, for factories and so on. So again, this is still the early stages. You know, when I first went to China back in 2005, you saw all these hovels you drove from the airport and the airport was okay. And you saw all these hovels and you got to a nice hotel and around it were basically pretty bad. Well, in 20 years or 15 years, whatever it is, the changes are fairly dramatic. And we think they will continue to be dramatic. So we look at the last, we look at the last 10 years and where they're going to go the next 10 years. So this is building for the future. You know, we can't build a high-speed train in California. We have this big surplus from San Diego to San Francisco. But again, they're doing trains, you know, they're doing, now I said this 1,000-kilometer train will reduce emphasis on air travel. And again, supposedly it's relatively green. We don't know. But again, it depends on how you define innovation. Okay, this is another interview that went quite long. So it is split up into two parts for the usual reasons of not overtaxing bandwidth and attention span. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, we've been following the deployment of autonomous ride-hailing services in China for a while now, and in August, Baidu announced that they had received permits to operate a fully driverless robo-taxi service in Wuhan and Chongqing during daylight hours. Multiple outlets quoted them as saying that they are the first company in China to get that permission. But you may have heard me say, or read in my book, that AutoX has been doing so in Shenzhen for over a year, and has a video on YouTube showing a ride taking place with no one in the front seats. That aside, this is a notable development, 
as the robo-taxi space heats up in China. Although I remain skeptical that Level 5 service is going to be possible, or even revenue-positive Level 4 services, this can only serve to advance the state-of-the-art in vehicle autonomy with many benefits for other applications. Next week, we will conclude the interview with Handel Jones, when we'll talk about China's development of its transportation infrastructure, developments in space, and different attitudes towards AI development between China and the West. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.